Lord, you will reign forever. This is the word of the Lord to us, your promise to us, and the witness that we have sung together here today. We know that you are alive, that you reign, that you are coming again to establish your kingdom and authority forever and ever. And we long for that day and pray that we would walk in the sense of it, in the knowledge of your presence and of your reign. For those who know not Christ, that you would open their eyes to see the truth that they cannot see in their own strength. And may you bring saving grace to us today. We pray for those who know Jesus as Savior and pray that we might grow in our conviction, in our thanksgiving of what you have taught us and how you have provided a knowledge of who you are in your word. Open that word now to us by the ministry of the Spirit of God. And may we grow together in the likeness of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Your life and our life together as a local church will never rise higher than our view of God. The purpose of our lives, the joy of our lives, our sense of identity, our freedom of conscience, and all interpersonal relationships, they all rest on our view of God. But who is God? How is God rightly known? How is God rightly approached in worship? It really all boils down to two directions on this question. There are those who say that God is who we want God to be. What we feel God must be. What makes most sense to us as we reason our way upward and discern from our own hearts who God is. The second approach is that God has chosen to reveal Himself. That He reaches down to us. Well, firmly planted in the second camp, Eden Baptist Church holds to the doctrine of divine revelation. We have sung of it here this morning. We believe that God reveals who He is by the inspiration of texts of Holy Scripture. Secondly, his saving deeds in the world, interpreted by Scripture and divine prophecy. And thirdly, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, the ultimate demonstration of who God is, or he is God. Now, of course, we are accused of inventing the idea of divine revelation, just have kind of a unique way of getting where everybody else is, and that's by claiming that this comes from God rather than from your own head. But as that statement is made, that does not mean that we are invited to the table. To have a seat there with every other religion or everyone else that wants to think about these things. And so, our belief that God has revealed who He is, is offensive. Because if there is one true and living God who reveals who He is and supplies truth that will save or condemn every living soul... Well, that kind of ruins our freedom to mold God into whatever we want God to be. And that's offensive. And so we face hostility as the unbelieving world labors in their idolatrous remaking and remolding of God to fit popular imagination and fleshly desires. A case in point, 
a recent chapel service at Duke University Divinity School in name, a Methodist institution, started with this invocation to their service of worship. Good morning. The holy and queer one be with you. A prayer was then offered to the ever-becoming one, the great queer one, whose Pentecostal fire calls some people to embrace homosexual and transsexual identities. Indeed, transgender persons who submit to the pain of reconstructive surgery identify with Jacob who limped after wrestling with God. And then this prayerful petition, it's really ironic, thick with irony. This was the prayer in this chapel service. Do not allow us to make our ideas of you into an idol, which is precisely what the entire service labored to do, to build an idol and to bow before it. Well, this is little more than the musings of some young people who have made identity politics their god. But I'd like us for a moment just to think in that scene and to imagine that that was the official religion of our nation. Imagine that such idolatry was the way that the average citizen of our land processed life. It was just handed to them. That's just how people thought. This is where they stood. Imagine that all of us who worship the God revealed in Scripture lived in danger of losing our lives. That was the kind of world in which the prophet Elijah found himself. Under Ahab's idolatrous reign. It was just how people thought. The idolatrous worship of Baal permeated everything in Israel. Elijah rebuked Ahab. He announced to the king that the true God would withhold rain from the land in keeping with the terms of the covenant between God and Israel. And we'll have to work that out a bit as we work our way through this text today, that unique relationship there that God had with Israel. But but Elijah confronts Ahab. And although Baal is believed to be the God of fertility, no rain has fallen now for over three years. Leaving God's witness protection program in Zarephath, Elijah travels south onto Ahab's turf. And having confronted Ahab's idolatrous ways, Elijah proposes a wager for all the marbles on Mount Carmel. Elijah's charge we find in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 18. At the end of that verse, he says to the king, You have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. What God has revealed about Himself in Scripture, how He has revealed Himself in acts of salvation through the history of our nation, you have rejected that and you have built a God in your own image. You are worshiping the idol Baal. And then His challenge, verse 19. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 
He lays down the gauntlet and sets here, as we pick up at verse 20, the parameters of this contest, as we see in these verses that God reveals himself by fire in answer to Elijah's prayer. But first of all, Elijah sets the parameters of the context there in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Where the contest is located is the first point of consideration here. We see this uh, mountain that kind of juts out into the Mediterranean Sea, stuck right there on that northwestern edge of Israel is Mount Carmel, and a large crowd then of Israelites will ascend the hill to a sacred and ancient place of Baal worship. As far as we can tell from ancient records, Baal has been worshipped on this spot for hundreds of years. This is his turf. This is Ahab's turf as people see it. Elijah has taken the fight to Baal by setting the contest here at Mount Carmel. Verse 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. The land and the people were shriveling to death in this drought. The people were not therefore keen to oppose Elijah. You can imagine, how bold do you want to be before a prophet whose prayers have cranked shut the faucets of heaven for three years? You're going to tread lightly. But they are also unwilling to step with Elijah and to worship the true God, Yahweh. So to lose the sensually pleasing worship of Baal to compromise their place under the prosperous reign of Ahab, to risk the wrath of Jezebel, that was a little bit too much to ask. And so they sit on the fence between the worship of true God and the idol, Baal. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord But Baal's prophets are 450. Now we've learned that Obadiah has been hiding 100 prophets of God in caves. But none of them were here in this situation. And it's apparently out of sight, out of mind for Elijah. And we'll see in chapter 19, he seems to struggle with underestimating the viability of God's faithful remnant. But for all practical purposes, we can give him the slack and say, in this situation, he pretty much is the only prophet of God, at least on that mountain. 450 prophets. Now, the the, the prophets of Asherah kind of disappear here. We don't really know what happens to them. Elijah challenges them to come as well. We don't know if they were whisked away somewhere or they just don't show up or perhaps they were all women and they were just dismissed from what's going to take place here. We don't really know, but it comes down to the 450 prophets of Baal versus the one prophet of God. Now this auditorium is pretty close to having 450 seats. If you put a person in every chair in this auditorium, that's the prophets of Baal all dressed alike, 
all identifiable, ascending this hill. I mean, it had to be an impressive scene. And it's quite clear from the text as it unfolds that the Israelites outnumber the prophets. There's many more of them who come to watch what is going to take place here. And there's one prophet of God. Verse 23. He makes this point in verse 22. Then verse 23 laying out the parameters of this challenge. He says, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, Baal, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Uh, That's a fair fight. Let's go for that. Let's see what happens here. And you think about it, I don't know how much they reason through this, but if neither God answers by fire, they're just fine and can go on worshiping Baal. But if God answers by fire, as some people were saying that He did, when the Levitical priesthood was inaugurated, or when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, there were, there were those who believed that that took place. And in fact, their holy writings speak of these two moments, and it seems like the crowd's like, hey, we're game for fireworks show. Let, let's see what happens. It sounds like a fair plan here. Let's see what happens. And there's no cheating, verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. He wasn't uh, hiding something in his bull that, uh, you know, some sort of, that was something that would spark a fire or something like that. He says, you choose, here they are, they pick a bull. The prophets of Baal call on their God. Secondly, we see in verse 26 then. So this is where it's located. Here's how the contest is set up. Now, The prophets of Baal call on their God. Verse 26, And they put the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. This limping, this word speaks of a, of a lilting, frenzied dance, possibly to the point of exhaustion. And as we put together the ancient texts of historians explaining this, this happened a lot. They would hang their head low that, so that their hair would drag in the ground and they would swirl in circles until they became too dizzy to stand up. And this just continued on throughout the day as they danced their dance around the altar praying to Baal to bring fire from the sky and to consume their sacrifice. Well, Elijah assumes they've had enough time here about noon this day, verse 27, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either Baal is musing or he's relieving himself. Is The word means he's busy, which I think is probably a euphemism for that. Some texts have just that he's busy, but he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. 
what do you gain here? I mean, this is no intimidated man, is it? <laughs> Not at all. This is a man of strong faith. This is a prophet of God who knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that these prophets are praying to thin air. He's not risking anything here to mock them in this way. Baal is nothing. Baal is no thing. He's not there. He is no concern to anyone, and there's utterly no fear on Elijah's part. Nor does Elijah fear these prophets. He smells a change in the wind as they come up with nothing. Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention because no one was there. This type of frenzied self-mutilation, again, is well-tested in ancient history. This isn't something the Bible just invented in this moment, but rather, it, it was, this is how they did it. This is where idolatry leads. And if you get into the psychology of it, the spirituality of it, it was connected to the worshiper's sense of unworthiness and the need to suffer for sin in order to get the God to respond. The God is not responding to me it must be because something's wrong with me, and so I will harm myself. And maybe God will see, well, okay, he's self-punishing, and therefore I will respond. To satisfy the wrath of a God who is not listening leads to self-mutilation. Just take a quick aside. I don't know where it comes up very often in Scripture, but the circumstances in our society in our day differ quite widely from what we see here. But cutting is an idolatrous practice that is very alive in our society. I cut myself because I deserve to suffer for the wrongs I've done. I cut myself because I'm ugly and I'm angry at fate for making me this way. I cut myself because there is no answer, no solace, no balm for the soul in the face of my severe disappointments. Whatever the reason, there's a million of them. But it's all a way of responding to life as if there is no God. There's no Savior there's no joy in his presence. And this, of course, can even be in that moment the sense of someone who knows the Lord. But in that moment, the world and my trials are huge. And there's no God to answer. I realize as we deal with this as a society, we're dealing maybe almost very largely with younger people. And I realize for people, for younger people who cut themselves, there is need for compassion and understanding and loving response. So don't take my comments wrongly. But this does not cancel the reality that purposefully and willfully harming the body God created and assigned to us is idolatry. It is seeking to rest out of this world 
an answer where there is no God to answer. Those who know and love God receive their bodies as a gift and as a stewardship from Him. Our bodies are far from perfect. They fall apart in really ugly ways. But they are God's provision. We don't worship them, on the other hand, as C.S. Lewis referred to his body as brother ass, which is about right. You can't be impressed with a donkey. It just is serviceable sometimes. And then there's other times it's not. It's just brother ass. Well, where do the frenzied wild antics get these worshipers avail? Where does the cutting of the flesh lead? It leads to absolutely nowhere. They have molded a God to fit their own imagination, fleshly desires. Imagination is all that their God is. It's utterly useless. They do this until the time of the offering of oblation. This is a beautiful line. The offering of oblation, the evening sacrifice, that was when that single lamb was offered about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The, the, the process began. So go in your mind's eye from this northwestern corner of Israel down south into Judah and at the temple of Jerusalem. There in that moment there is a lamb that is being slaughtered on the altar. The time of the evening sacrifice, and in keeping with that time, in keeping with the approach that God has revealed in His Word, this is how you come to Me. This lamb stands symbolically in the nation's place to bear God's judgment for that day. That's what's happening in Jerusalem where the true worship of God is yet a flickering light in the, of a candle. In that very moment, Elijah steps to the plate. It's now his turn to bat. And he calls upon God, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. Two seas of seed probably means the space of land that would be necessary to sow seven quarts of seed or something like that. It was a pretty sizable trench. We don't know the history of this altar, only that Elijah stacks 12 large stones that could be handled by hand and made a small, unspectacular altar. Picture it in your mind. This, this rugged altar of uncut stone was as rugged in comparison with Baal's altar as Elijah's dress and appearance contrasted with the elaborate robes of Baal's prophets who sat in the shadows now exhausted, defeated, and bleeding. 
Assembling these 12 stones was a rebuke to the 10 tribes of Israel for breaking with Judah. It was also a ray of hope reminding Israel of God's electing love of her 12 tribes. Most significantly, Elijah builds a rugged altar to Yahweh on what is supposedly Baal's holy spot. Verse 33, And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. That's weird. By the way, four jars, don't think jars you hold in your hand, but these would be large uh, clay pots that were used to carry significant amounts of water. And he said, do it a second time. That's even weirder. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Uh, Many people have said, whoa, time out. The author's lost his way here. Remember, it's supposed to be a drought. But the ancient historians, Josephus included, have identified a spring that is in this very area. And so certainly very carefully protected during this drought is undoubtedly where they secured the water. Now some say with tongue-in-cheek, there also happens to be the Mediterranean Sea that's right by there, so it wouldn't be hard. But very doubtful that they were able to make that journey in this one afternoon. And so I think probably out of a well that was nearby, they got this water and it was very precious stuff. I mean, this would be like pouring liquid gold on the altar for us. But he wants to make sure what? There's no deception, there's no trickery. And again, the ancient documents tell us that there was a lot of that kind of trickery that went on to make it seem like the God had answered with fire. That's not going to happen here. Verse 36 And at the time of the offering of the oblation, that evening sacrifice in Jerusalem, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Elijah prays that God will reveal his presence to Israel as he has revealed his message to Elijah. And Elijah worships the God who is there. He longs for people to recognize that that's who God is. He is there. We're not praying to no thing, but to the God of heaven and earth. Answer me, verse 37, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. You have turned their hearts back. What's going on with that? It doesn't seem like their hearts are turned back whatsoever. God's prophet is on the mountain like Moses of old. God's word has been declared here. A sacrifice in keeping with God's law has been arranged on the altar. Yahweh's name has been intoned on Baal's holy site. It seems, from Elijah's perspective, that God is turning the heart of the nation. That He's moving everything toward a renewal of the covenant between God and Israel. He may be granting Israel an opportunity to reaffirm and anew that Yahweh is truly God. And so it is, in a sense, like He prays ahead. 
I thank you ahead of time that you're turning their hearts back to you. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. It is pure mercy that fire does not fall and consume every idolater on that hill. Every fence-sitting Israelite on that mountain could have been destroyed. But what happens? God brings His judgment fire down upon a substitute. A sacrificial animal that pays the price for Israel's sin. And wow, did fire ever fall? I mean, there's no question left, was there? Our God is a consuming fire, and He leaves nothing to doubt. Sends a bolt of fire so hot that it eats up and disintegrates even the rocks of the altar. Sacrifice. The sacrifice here anticipates, of course, the final sacrifice. Where the fire of God falls upon the Lamb of God who dies in the place of sinners to bear the sin and the judgment that should have fallen on us. And it is a call to us to see where this is all leading to Jesus Christ taking that fire of judgment in behalf of those who have violated the laws of God. He calls us then to simple trust. Well, there's an immediate response to this outcome. Verse 39, and it is dramatic. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You can just see them excitedly joining together in unison, proclaiming the obvious truth that they've seen before their very eyes. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So right along, just along the skirting Mount Carmel, it's remember 11 miles in length, there is this brook, I haven't traced it all out, but that's the, the, the vital section there of that brook that flows to the sea. And he calls for Israel to come around these 450 prophets, which is why I believe there's far more observers than there are prophets. And they march them down the hill and put them to death there at that brook. On this day, its dry, thirsty channel flowed with blood. Now, the objection comes here again to us that we face so often. Where is the God of mercy now? This is why we reject the Old Testament, many say. This is that God of wrath that just kills the people who don't agree with Him. God is not the author of evil. But we must embrace the truth that He judges evil. He is a consuming fire. No false advertisement there. God righteously withdraws His blessing from those who insist on suffocating souls with false teaching. And when He withdraws His blessing, the only thing left is His curse. He is the only source of blessing. That's what these individuals were proving with their prayers, cutting themselves 
and going crazy, pleading with Baal to show up. Baal doesn't show up because Baal's not there. God is the only source of blessing. And every blessing in our lives, even if we spurn the Lord, is a product of His grace in our lives. So when He withdraws that blessing, the only thing left is curse. The thing is, as we have observed last week, He actually is God. He is sovereign. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And from his perspective, the prophets of Baal are a curse. Their influence is killing and suffocating Israel as much as Israel is suffocating from this drought. So for God to approve their removal is akin to a surgeon removing a gangrenous foot. It's terribly sad that the patient loses the foot, but that foot is killing the patient. And so the surgeon takes a knife and severs that foot to save the life. Let me add to this, from our perspective, and as we face that critique, let's also recognize that we are not comparing apples with apples, as they say, as we look at our society and our life under the new covenant with Israel's life as a theocracy. They are all citizens of a sacral state. We are not. Jesus never intended us to be. And much of his teaching makes that very clear. We're not in this place of following Christ in order to capture kingdoms, to capture governments. Jesus made this clear. I want you into every marketplace, everywhere on earth, and proclaim my name there. So we're in a very different setting than were the Old Testament theocratic Israelites. God's law called for the execution of idolaters. But remember, the whole agenda is different. If you're going to come to the true God and worship Him under, in this period of time, where are you going to go? You're going to come to Israel. You're going to learn about God there. And so God continues to purify His people because this is the place where the world must come to meet the Lord. We, in contrast, under the new covenant, are to go into the world everywhere. So we move outward with the gospel under a new covenant in which the Lord Jesus calls us to this task. So, let's bring it back. Kill the prophets of Baal. Aren't you as Christians, really, if you are honest and faithful to the text, wouldn't you be seeking to kill those students at Duke Divinity School? What's the difference? They're false prophets. They're idolaters in your view. So aren't you called to take them out if you could get away with it? And what would we say? Absolutely not. We're called not to kill them, but to die for them. We take the gospel and pay the price of the suffering of Christ. That's our call under the new covenant. So we're big enough to recognize there was a different covenant. There was a theocratic setting, which does not apply to the followers of Christ today because He fulfilled the law and because He called us under a new covenant to a wholly different program. We don't kill the idolaters. We die for them. 
we give our lives in the proclamation of the gospel and at some places some of us in God's providence give their lives. So Deuteronomy 13 and the execution of idolaters is no longer in play. It was in play in Elijah's day because the nation sought sought God had to come to Israel for salvation. And so purification was necessary. We, by contrast, go to the nations and fill up the sufferings of Christ. We can only tag on this second major point. God has revealed himself by fire in answer to Elijah's prayer. And we see then, secondly, that God reveals himself by rain in answer to Elijah's prayer in verses 41 and following. First of all, we have a bidding here that Ahab would eat. Verse 41, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. There is the sound of rushing of rain. It's hard to know what that means, but somehow it seems like the sound of rain is rumbling in Elijah's head. He knows that it's coming. He feels it in his bones. We say it that way. He can just feel it in his bones. As to Elijah's invitation to eat, that Ahab would eat, some take this to be a covenant renewal ceremony. So the covenant is being renewed as this discipline has been executed and Israel is being purified, as Israel has now turned to embrace God for the moment. I doubt that's the case. And I would doubt it's the case because Elijah does not preside over the meal. Nor do we find reference to a priest of God there to mediate for Ahab. It seems unlikely to me that this is a covenant renewal meal when you don't have anybody there to mediate the covenant to the king. And so I would take it more that Elijah's saying, King, you haven't eaten all day. There's sacrificial steaks on the altar. Go back on up and get some. Because you're going to need it. It's going to be a long, long afternoon and evening. So get something to eat. Where does Elijah go? He goes in the opposite direction. Verse 42, Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. I take that to be shins and tops of feet flat on the ground, knees bent, face between his knees. This is a, this is a position of intense prayer. God's will is certain. Rain will come. Ahab, or, or Elijah can feel it in his bones, and yet God delights to work through the prayers of His people. The prayers of the saints constitute the appointed channel by which God executes His will. He's not limited to this channel, but He takes great pleasure, it seems, in, in including us in through prayer in what He's doing for the glory of His name. It is our joy, it is our high calling to collaborate with God. And that's where we find Elijah here as Ahab is eating, as everybody is considering what's happened with the death of the prophets and rejoicing in the fact that the Lord has proven Himself true in this way and turning back to the Lord. And here's Elijah by himself in prayer. And at the seventh time, I'm sorry, verse 43, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. 
And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. He answered with fire. Immediately he doesn't answer with rain. There's seven seasons of prayer. We could, think, we could say a lot about that and just think of it, what it must have meant to Elijah, but he continues intensely in prayer. And then verse 44, And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. This thing is complete. The forerunner cloud is coming. Rain is approaching. And Elijah joins Ahab's processional now to Jezreel. Verse 44, he said, uh, at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and the wind, and there was a great rain. Showers of blessing fall again. The curse of the covenant was over in this moment. Blessing was restored Can you imagine the Israelites after three and a half years of no rain? I guarantee nobody's sleeping. Nobody's hiding in their house. They're probably standing outside, drinking it in, looking up to the skies and receiving this blessing from God. They undoubtedly frolicked in the downpour. And those who had assembled on Carmel earlier that day knew this was Yahweh's doing. The rain washed away their hopelessness as it carried the blood of the false prophets down the Kishon and out to sea. Verse 45, And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel, about 15 miles away, through a pouring rain and dirt roads. It would have taken a lot of energy and time that approaching evening. Jezreel is right nearby uh, this area. It's, like I said, 15 miles away, but it would have been a harrowing trip in any sense of the word, uh, a difficult trip. Uh, But Jezreel is where the summer palace of Ahab was located. It would appear that Elijah was miraculously aided to run ahead of the chariot, but this is a key, and something I never thought about before. I always just thought, well, it's just kind of a note about how fast he was with God's power, and he got there first. What I didn't understand until just this week is that in the ancient world, every chariot carrying an official had a servant run out in front of it. That was just the way it was, and you can go back not so far in history and find accounts of this, still the case in the ancient Middle East, but even in the Middle East in more recent times. A runner, and they were trained in running. They could run, outrun all of us here, probably, or maybe there's five of you that could hang in there with them. I'm not one of the five, I will tell you that. Um, but he runs out in front of them. What does it mean? Elijah assumes this position as the servant of Ahab. Elijah sends the message that this is a key opportunity, Ahab, to step forward and lead the nation back to Yahweh. The prophets of Baal are history. It's time for the king to now lead a revival in Israel. 
And Elijah lends his considerable influence by running ahead as the servant of the king. Indeed, the servant the king should continue to follow as he proclaims the word of the Lord. But as the muddied, soaking, wet prophet enters the walls of Jezreel that happy day, he stands with the king. And here inside the walls of Ahab's summer abode, the two part ways. We don't have the picture of that scene. But we know Elijah enters. Ahab's chariot enters. Did, they, did their eyes meet? Did Ahab ignore him? I see Elijah bent over, filling his lungs with oxygen, and Ahab's chariot lumbering past. This was a crucial moment of turning for Ahab and Israel. But as Ahab enters the doors of his palace, exhausted by the journey and the day's events, he enters into the abode of his queen Jezebel. How will he break the news to her? What will she say? Would he lead and follow Elijah? Or follow her and spurn his partnership with Elijah? Well, as we end this particular scene on this very eventful day, we come to verse 39 again and return here to say this is at the heart of it. The Lord, He is God. He is there. He is sovereign. He is the Lord. How do we know? Because He reveals Himself in acts of saving grace throughout history. And He provides His inspired written word to help us to rightly understand those events. He does not reveal himself often. And if you would leave here today and say, well, I want God to show himself to me. I want God to burn something down at my command, at my prayer, or something like that. That's foolishness. He's not a dog and pony show that just does whatever anybody wants to prove that he's there. Remember what the Pharisees wanted to see happen with Jesus to prove who he was, and that was more miracles. They'd already seen miracles. They just wanted more of them. Because the miracles would not convince. But we do have those occasions in history as we rely upon witnesses to speak to us about what took place and to know that it did. God has broken through in history time and again and entrusted to us His written word which reads our hearts and feeds our souls. And we sit here today and we consider This is the God who is there. And He's as much there today as He was in Elijah's day. And think of where it's pointing us. You have Elijah, the forerunner of the chariot of the king. This is one flawed king. And this Elijah is also a flawed man. But it points us to that Elijah who is to come as the forerunner of the king who is perfect. In whom there is no unrighteousness. The king, in fact, who brings to the table and brings to our consideration again fire and rain. The fire of the judgment of God, the curse that falls upon Christ. 
He bears that penalty as the substitute in the place of the sinner. And what is coming and where this is pointing us as the new Elijah comes to announce the Messiah is that this one who bears the wrath of God will also pour out His Spirit in a baptism of the Spirit to those who trust and know Him. A future fire will fall on all then who reject the provision of God that He has made for our salvation. For those of us who trust that message of salvation in Christ, there is the washing, penetrating rain of the Spirit of God who purifies the soul and fills our inner being with His presence and joy. And so it is a call to all of us to embrace the God who is there, the God who has revealed Himself, the God of Elijah, the God who brings to this earth in in flesh the person of the eternal Son of God in His death and resurrection and baptism, filling us with saving grace. So like Israel at Mount Carmel, it is then for all who are on the fence, for all who are unsure, for all who have struggled to make God in their own image, to lay it all down, And seek the Lord while He may be found. To call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. We praise You, Father, that the fire of judgment that was rightly trained on our heads, was born by Jesus, our substitute and Lamb of sacrifice. We praise You in this moment. We praise You for the washing of the Holy Spirit, for the gift of the Spirit of God to cleanse our souls from sin and to give us a hope in eternity with You. We praise You for the One who came to announce Messiah and for the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who will reign and does reign in righteousness forever and ever. Lord, we are awed by this scene and this text. May we take home with us knowing it's as good as being there. In fact, in many respects, this text left for us and for history is better than being there. For we hear the very thoughts of God. We hear your direction and counsel on what took place and what it meant. Lord, I pray that we'd embrace it as firmly as any Israelite and because of the baptism of the Spirit more firmly and permanently that you alone are God. That you are the Savior and the keeper of your people. Draw us to that light, we pray this day, through Christ. Amen.